0: If you guys have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the Psalms. We're going to be in, uh, Psalm, starting Psalm 44 tonight. We'll see where we end up. As we come to Psalm 44, we're looking at what the Scripture calls a Psalm of Lament. A Psalm of Lament, uh, we've talked about several times as we've been working our way through the Psalms. A Psalm of Lament is dealing with uh, the hard parts of life. And I think actually it's pretty healing if we can, as men and women learn, to express our hurts the way the, the, that the psalmist does. Um, oftentimes in counseling, I'll share with people to write a psalm. In a psalm of lament, uh, typically there's an issue, there's a problem, there's something that's, that's out of whack that uh, the, the, the writer is upset about. And so he's going to express that. He's going to express what's happening in his heart. And he's going to express his frustration. But he's going to move from his frustration as he he follows through the psalm. As he goes through the poem that he's writing. And eventually he's going to come to a point where he puts his eyes on God. So we express the pain. We express the hurt. We express the disappointment, the frustration, whatever. That's that's okay. God understands that. And it's, it's important for us as human beings to learn to express that. And so we express it, but then you move from that expression to putting your eyes off of your problem and onto God and describing God and what He's done and how He's moved and maybe what He's done for us in the past and what we think He's going to do for us in the future. And what that does is that it helps us. The reason it's a vital part of worship is it helps us take our eyes off of our hurts and our pains and our issues, where we have a tendency to be focused, and where we then move from a Christ centered reality to a man centered reality, and my problems become central and I start to lose my way, or if I'm Peter, I sink in the water. <clears throat> I move from that to getting my eyes on Christ and finding myself in a God centered relationship where He's central, and as He's central, as I, my focus is on Him in that place, then, then I am in a right relationship with God, I'm in a healthy place, I'm following the example of David, right, man after God's own heart, who kept his walk Christ-centered, kept his his walk centered on God, and as we look and we, as we move in now to the Psalms of Korah, it's the same thing, those guys are following the example of the ones who went before him, and so they, they bring us through this healthy expression of the reality that life is hard, we are all okay with that, right? Because I don't. Sometimes, sometimes in churches, we pretend like you, you come to Christ and nothing ever hurts again. So, just so we're all clear, that's not the reality I live in. So, hurts. That's right. Hurts still happen. You still get sick. You still have struggles. You still have issues. Expressing those things and still remaining centered on God is why the Psalms are vital to helping us with the walk that we need to have. And Psalm 44 does that. So let's take a look at it. He begins, to the chief musician, a contemplations of the sons of Korah. He says, we have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in the days of old. Uh, the Psalm begins looking back. And he's going to look back at the history of redemption, and we'll see the point as we work our way through, but as he's looking back, he said, hey, we've heard the stories of all the great things God has done. And so their, their fathers followed what the Scripture told them to do in Deuteronomy, right? The Scripture said in Deuteronomy, teach your children. Teach them when you walk, when you stand, when you move, when you're doing things, teach them. And when you got an opportunity to show them, hey, you know what, let me tell you how God got me out of something like this, or... Or what God did for me here. That we teach them that. Now we have the other side of that coin where the children are saying, hey, we heard this from our fathers. We heard about what you've done and how you've moved. So he's looking at the glorious past, the, the glories then. And wanting ultimately to make application to his present. Let's take a look at it. He said, you drove out the nations with your hand. So the idea, God did it. It wasn't the people, so he's looking back at the through the Exodus when the children of Israel first come into the land and they're having their battles and they're going through the period of time with the kings. He's saying, Look, you you delivered us. Who parted the Red Sea? It wasn't Moses. That's God. Who's given victory over their enemies? It wasn't the, the, the Joab and Abishai who, who met together and said, Hey, you fight that way, I'll fight this way. If it goes wrong, we'll meet in the middle and we'll hope for the best. And we'll commit this time to God. If God shows up, we'll win. Those two guys knew. If God's here, we're going to be okay. If he's not, we're not going to be okay. And so he's saying, you, God, you drove out the nations uh, with your hand. But them you planted. But, remember, but is always a word of strong contrast. Takes us to the flip side. But them... Our fathers, that goes back to our fathers uh, grammatically. So he's saying, our fathers you planted, them you drove out. You drove out the goyim. The goyim It's the same word that we use for Gentile. You drove out the nations, the Gentiles, those who were in opposition to what God was doing. You drove them out. But them, our fathers, the ones who told us this story, you planted. Those you brought into the land, you brought here. He says, you afflicted the peoples and cast them out. Again, another, another word for the nations. All groups that were not part of the plan, you drove them out for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword. Now he goes back to our fathers. The they, the they is our fathers, the ones who you planted. They didn't gain possession of the land because of their sword. Because of how smart they were, how good they were, how they had all these plans together. Nor did their own arm save them. But, strong contrast, rather than being them and their victory, he says it was <clears throat> your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. So as he's rehearsing their history, he's talking about the things that the fathers had told him, How God had delivered them from their enemies. How God had fought the battles for him. You, you can put any of the, the Old Testament heroes in there. You can talk about Gideon and, and the battle that Gideon fought. Gideon didn't win that because of how smart or how many guys they had or how tough they were. He won because God favored him. God gave him victory by his right hand. I love that phrase, by the light of your continence. It's, it's, it's literally by the light of your face. The idea that God's looking at them and and that light that he said to Moses, you know, Moses, you can't see my glory. If you saw my glory, you'd die. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to let you see the afterglow. I'm going to walk past you and, the, and the, the light, the sprinkles that are behind me, <laughs> those things you can see. And so Moses saw him. For 40 days, he shone, right? His face shone for 40 days because of the dust particles God kicked up when he walked past Moses as Moses was hidden in the rock. So... The same thing, he says, the the way you've given us victory is you're looking at us. It's the light of your face. It's your right hand, the the place of strength. It's God's victory that God gave. And so, as he begins his lament, okay, a lament means there's a problem somewhere, and we're going to get there. He first starts by looking back at the faithfulness of God that he had been taught. How the fathers had taught them about God's faithfulness. <clears throat> and then in verse 4, he moves really to the central claim that he's going to hang on to. He's going to hang on to this claim, verse 4. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. So the proclamation, before he's even got to his, his problem, his heartache, his issue. You're my king. You're the king. So you command the victories. You are in charge. You are in charge of of my life. You are in charge of the things. (laughs) that that The victories we're going to have. Victory is always from the Lord. Look at verse 5. So through you, we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. And then it becomes personal. For I will not trust in my bow. He's not going to trust in his own prowess not going to trust in his own strength. You put any word there, I'm not going to trust in the army. I'm not going to trust in my bank account. I'm not going to trust in my ability to pull myself up by my bootstraps. He's saying, I'm going to trust in you, God. You give the victory. The victory comes from you. Victory comes through you. So it's you. I won't trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But... In strong contrast to that, opposite of that, you have saved us from our enemies. You have put to shame those who hated us. So again, he's looking present. You will, and now he looks backwards. You have. You with me? So you have been there. You have saved us. You have put to shame those uh, who hated us. So in God, we will boast all day long. That's present tense. So he's looking back. There's something going on and he's looking back and he's saying, look, because of that faithfulness, I know I can hold to you. You are my king. I can trust you and I can trust in your strength and your deliverance. So we'll boast in you all day long. Now, by the way, that means no matter victory or defeat. All day long. All day long, we'll, we will boast in you and praise your name forever. Forever. And then we come into the problem in verse 9. They have lost. Psalm 44 is kind of a unique psalm because in Psalm 44, oftentimes we come to Psalms and the struggle that's going on in the people's lives is a struggle that's due to some sin, some issue. Except Psalm 44. The people aren't doing anything wrong. They're just walking with God. And life is hard. And they just got smoked. They just walked into defeat. They just got put down by the enemies. And and so they're looking to God. Now look, we heard in the past how you delivered and how you brought about these great victories. And we know you're able and we trust in your might and your power. But what we're experiencing right now is defeat. And one of the one of the titles of God is Yahweh Nisi, the Lord our victory, and He's still the Lord our victory, even in the middle of defeat. And when we look at it, the the important thing, let's put it in the context. For example, let's talk about Saeed. Was he in prison because of some great sin? Something he did wrong and so God's punishing him by putting him in prison and keeping him separate from his family? No, he's a warrior for the Lord in enemy territory. And how does the enemy treat God's people? And that's what Psalm 44 is all about. The idea that we're in enemy territory, that we're not surrounded by by friends and people who are, are kind and loving and Intolerant of our faith that 's not the world we live in It 's turn on the news <laughs> there 's a lot of calls of being tolerant for a lot of people who who have a lot of intolerance, but there 's not a call for tolerance toward believers there 's a worry about how um, Muslims are being treated and cared about, but there 's not the same worry for the Christians that are being slaughtered right because we 're we should expect that. That should not be, we should not be like, well, that's shocking. No, it's not shocking. We're in a messed up world. That's not shocking. So, what we do is we look at Psalm 44 and say, well, what, how did these guys deal with it? How did they deal with a defeat in enemy territory while they're following God and wanting to do what God wants them to do? What did they do? Look what he says in verse 9. <clears throat> he says, but in strong contrast, right? But you. Have cast us off and put us to shame. So he's going to go through about eight things. I see eight things. You can make your own list anytime you want, but I see like eight things that he talks about here specifically. Um, so you have cast us off and put us to shame, and you do not go out with our armies. So the first thing that the first complaint of their lament is they feel abandoned. I feel abandoned. I feel like I'm out here alone. Where are you, God? And if we're honest about the things that we've struggled with and things we've gone through, there certainly have been times we felt that way. Abandoned. And, and our question is, and his, his is going to be too, why is this happening? Why is this happening? But well, let's look at it. So he's been abandoned. Look at verse 10. You make us to turn back from the enemy. So the second thing he says, is, we're conquered. We're conquered. We're abandoned and we're conquered. And then he says, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. So we're abandoned, conquered, and plundered. And then he goes on, you have given us up like sheep intended for food. So they're being slaughtered. Abandoned, conquered, plundered, slaughtered. And you have scattered us among the nations. So now they're scattered. No home. No home. You sell your people for next to nothing. So they're being enslaved. And God's not even getting a great price. Next to nothing. You are not enriched by selling them. Verse 13. You make us a reproach to our neighbors. So we're hated. So now we have abandoned, conquered, plundered, slaughtered, scattered, enslaved, and hated. Scorn and derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations. Shaking, a shaking of the head among the people. So now we have ridiculed. Abandoned, conquered, plundered, slaughtered, scattered, enslaved, hated, ridiculed. It's a rough week. That's the lament. So as we look at the psalm, here's where we are. Here's our present. We feel battered and beaten and scattered and, and abandoned and conquered. We, we can't seem to, to get ahead. But And, he, and he's going to talk in a moment about our, but our relationship with you. We're following you. And we want to do what you want us to. And one of the things that I think we need to discover as we work our way through this life is if we find the inability to feel like we fit in here, it's because we have been made for something more than what this place has to offer. If this place would satisfy, then the Bible would have said, Abraham was looking for a city he could build. But what does the scripture tell us? Abraham was looking for a city that had foundations that God built. A city of God. A city that wouldn't crumble and fall apart. A city where he belonged. A home where he belonged. And what the psalmist is discovering in this place is he's in enemy territory. And his life is turned upside down. And it's not its not making a lot of sense. And he's saying, look, I I know what my father's taught me about your ability to deliver. And I believe and I choose to praise you. And I know that you're able to deliver me, but this is my reality. And if I... I don't know, I'd say probably close to two-thirds of the church lives that way. Maybe the third that don't is the third that's around here. You know, in the States, we, we ain't got to that point yet. But there's places where You know, I was meeting with Jay earlier this week and talking about how the Christians can't get into the refugee camps in in the Muslim countries because if they find out they're Christians, they're just going to slaughter them. Where do they go? Somebody just burned down our town and threw us out of our house and we don't have anything anymore. You don't think they feel abandoned or conquered or ridiculed or hated? That's... That's the, that's the way Jesus said the world would look at the body of Christ. And really, that's, that's how the world sees us. It's, it's not as big an issue for the world as it is for us when we see those things occurring for our brothers and sisters. And that this, Psalm 44, this is how they feel. He says, My dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me. He's saying, I'm completely. I feel completely, as an individual, I feel completely cut off. And as a corporate body, as a nation, I feel completely cut off. Whether we look at it as a whole or in part, my dishonor is continually before me, the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the enemy and the avenger. And all those things are true. There's a real enemy. It's a real battle. And if somebody sold you a bill of goods about how there was not going to be no fighting, they weren't reading the word. The time when David got in trouble was when he decided he wasn't going to fight no more. No, this life is a battle. And we don't battle with flesh and blood. Our battle is not against ISIS. It's the spiritual powers behind the attitude that's a part of ISIS. ISIS. And we defeat that enemy not with the power of the sword or with the bow, but by the power of the word and through the Holy Spirit. Not by strength, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's the spirit that gives us victory. Spirit that gives us strength. Spirit that gives us the ability to overcome. So he says in verse 17, this is where he's going to ask. He says, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. So they're saying, "Look, we're we're not being disobedient. We're we're being honest. We're we're just trying to walk the walk that you've called us to walk." It's not he's not calling repentance. He's he's saying he's not trying to say we're not without sin. We know that never happens, right? But he's saying there's not some specific sin that's brought this on. And that's important for us to realize because sometimes we think Every hard thing that happens in life is a result of some sin that that occurred or some failure that we have. And that's not always the case. Hard things in life happen because we live in a fallen, messed up, tweaked world that is in need of the King of Kings to be in control. The King of Kings is not the one currently calling the shots. He's not reigning from the throne of David. He will, but he's not. So as we look at it, look what he says. He says in verse 18, our heart has not turned back. So now look, I want you to see he's talking about internally, right? My heart, my inner being has not turned away from you. So my heart is is following you, nor have our steps departed from you. So he's talking about both internal, my heart, and my steps, my walk, my external The way I live externally, the way I am internally, I'm still with you, God. I'm still following you. I'm still being obedient. I have not departed from your way. But you, in strong contrast, as he looks toward his relationship and what he sees with his relationship with God. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals. Interesting. I always love it when the Bible puts jackals. How many of your Bibles say jackals? crazy thing cuz that makes more sense the word is is tannin means dragon uh, and i'm not sure jackal makes more sense jackal's what we do cuz we think well there are no dragons okay well if there is no dragons maybe there ain't no dragons but there's one big red dragon that the bible does talk about isn't there so you have broken us severely broken us in the place of dragons. When I see that, when I see that, that Hebrew word, the reason they do jackals and ostriches and owls and weird things for words like that is because they don't really, <clears throat> there's not no real hard, fast concept. It it's, seems to be a mythological creature that doesn't make sense. But always, those mythological creatures that don't make sense are in a fallen state, like a spiritual enemy. You go through the Old Testament and study what the Rephaim is. The Rephaim, the closest thing, if, if we wanted to define the Rephaim, I think, in today's vernacular, would be zombies. But it wouldn't make any sense to say zombie. But what the Rephaim was, was the, the lost souls of the departed. But there's a valley called that, the Valley of the Rephaim, and it was an enemy of the nation of Israel. And maybe what they're saying behind that is not zombies were running around, but the idea that that this was a fallen place full of demonic activity and the enemy, the devil, the demons were a part of, of what was going on and what was happening and the struggle that was there. And I think what he's defining for us in verse 19 is we're broken in enemy territory. We're here to do battle with the dragon and I'm broken before the dragon. And to be honest, that's actually a pretty good place to be. As if you're not broken in front of the dragon you're going to think you can do it you're going to think I can take this dragon I just got to have a good plan right I got to have a good system a good idea but the strength for the sons of Korah in this psalm is we're broken and, and we don't know what's going on and we don't know why we're in this state but what are they doing in it they're calling on God Lord what do we do what do we do we're broken and we don't know why we're broke help Isn't that the one you want fighting the red dragon anyway? Isn't that the one you want doing battle with the devil? Do you know when God does battle with the devil, it's a really short fight? It's not like in doubt, like, oh, I wonder who's going to win, the devil or the Lord. You remember Legion, right? Didn't take Jesus very long. He cast them out. They had to ask him where they could go. Oh, where can we go? "You, You can go to the pigs. So it's, the, the battle's not a, 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 a thing of doubt. And there's a place of strength. Remember when Paul asked three times to have the thorn in his flesh removed? A messenger of Satan that was sent to him to buffet his flesh so he wouldn't get too big in his britches. That's Jackie paraphrased. But basically that's what it says. So he has a messenger of Satan buffeting his flesh. He called it the thorn in his flesh. He prayed three times for the Lord to remove it. And we remember what God said, right? No. I'm not moving it. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is enough for you. Because Paul didn't need to fight in his own strength. How did he need to fight? In the power of the Holy Spirit. And how do I make sure I'm going to fight in the power of the Holy Spirit? The Old Testament tells us a story about a guy who was, who, who was pretty smart, uh, always could figure his way out of things, He was a pretty strong guy. We see in some of the stories that we read in the book of Genesis, the guy was strong. It took several men to do things that he did by himself. His name was Jacob. He always had a scheme, a plan, a way to get out of of trouble. You guys remember, right? He's coming, his, his brother Esau is headed for him. He's a little freaked out, but he's dividing everything up. And one night before the big fateful meeting where he meets his brother, he wrestles with God. Remember the story? He wrestles with God and he's prevailing. He won't give up. He won't, when you got little kids, you know what this is like. If you're a grandpa and there are little kids and any of them are boys, now girls do it too, they jump on you like you're a trampoline. <laughs> when do they stop? Only if somebody gets hurt. they got energy that goes uh, at least two or three days beyond your ability to continue. Sometimes all you got to do is just try to stay stiff long enough so that nothing breaks when they're bouncing on you. And, and I think the God wrestling with Jacob is like a, 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 a grandpa wrestling with his kids. You know, grandpa's not trying. He's just trying to keep the kids from backing, banging their heads or busting their eyes open or whatever things can happen. And so they're jumping around. And what's God do? God finally reaches over. What's he do? He touches him. He touched him on the hip. Boop. And it says the muscle of his hip shriveled and he was lame the rest of his life. And so the next day when the battle happens, who did Jacob have to rely on? He had to rely on God. God changed his name just because of that. Jacob meant deceiver. God changed his name. You're not Jacob anymore. You're Israel. Governed by God. Ruled by God. I have to trust in God because I'm weak. I have to trust in him. And I think... That's the place where where God had brought the psalmist here in Psalm 44. You have covered us with the shadow of death. That sound familiar to anybody? Shadow of death. Yea, though I walk through what? What do you do when you walk through the valley of shadow of death? I fear no evil. evil. Why? Because you are with me. Right? If it reminds us of that, you don't think it reminds the dude writing this? Psalm 23 comes before 44. They had it already. Well, let's look what he does. He says in verse 20, If we had forgotten the name of our God, or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. So they're saying, look, if we were in sin, you'd be telling us we're in sin. So he's saying, "I, I, I know this is not a sin thing. It's just a doing battle with the enemy thing. God would have shown us, he'd have have shown us what was going on. Then verse 22 is the key to it all. And it should look familiar. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to the slaughter. Sound familiar? Probably one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 8. What is the point of that verse? Why are we suffering? Why is this going on, God? Why is it so hard? And ultimately, they're saying, because we're standing with you. Because we're following you. Look at what he says. For your sake, we are killed all day long. Because we're choosing you. What is it in in, in the book of Revelation that the martyrs are saying beneath the altar? When the martyrs beneath the altar are calling out to God this, How long, O Lord, until you avenge us? And God says, a little while longer, when your number is complete, has there ever been a time there haven't been martyrs yet? Because when people choose to follow the Lord, they get on the enemy's radar. And if we make the choice, I'm going to follow Jesus, then remember where Jesus said he was going. When he said to the disciples, come and follow me, where was he going? He's doing a three-year ministry that culminates at the cross. Or at the resurrection three days later. Or at the Mount of Ascension when he goes up to to heaven and says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to receive you unto myself that where I am, you will be also. But he told his disciples, look how the world treats me. That's how it's going to treat you. The spit, the, the beatings, all that. Is it, did any of that not happen to the disciples? Every one of them experienced a measure of the hatred of a fallen world against a Savior willing to die for them. All day long, for your sake. Because we follow you. This is... What this world has to offer us. That doesn't mean it will never be good. But we can never lose sight of the fact that we are in enemy territory. And we can claim parts of enemy territory as we move forward for Jesus Christ. Can't we? Can't we by proclaiming the gospel and seeing places turn around? Can't we claim areas for Jesus Christ? Can't Satan lose his grip on territory? Isn't that what the whole commission was all about? Jesus didn't say go into all the world because I want you all to die a martyr's death out there preaching the gospel. Some people he does. But when we go and we continue to go, we can wrestle away from the enemy, enemy territory, and claim it for Jesus Christ. You don't think that's true? Was it 1958, something like that, when the, when the missionaries were all killed at at the Aka Indians? What happened to that tribe Indians? To every man woman and child that became a village outpost to outreach deeper into the jungle because people didn't quit even though it cost them everything yeah we can take territory and that's when what we need to be found doing when Jesus comes claiming land for lack of a better term for the kingdom of God Is Jesus going to come back one day and put his flag right in the middle of it all? And it's all his. And what a glorious day that will be. But in the meantime, he's left me here in enemy territory, behind enemy lines, and said, go. And he didn't lie to me. He didn't say, go, it's going to be easy. And they're going to love you everywhere you go. And they're always going to welcome you with open arms. He didn't tell me that so i can go with eyes open and he give me psalms like psalm 40 that i can hold to and say look because i follow jesus i am an enemy of the world just how it is pick your side i'd rather die all day long for jesus christ than live forever for this place all day long all day long i'd rather have this than anything else <clears throat> He goes on in verse 23. Now, here's his prayer for deliverance. Okay, God, I understand it. I get that it's because we're with you. We're your kids. Have you guys ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah, I, what's the guy's name that sings? Tevye. Say it again. Tevye. Tevye, I can't even remember his name. But uh, doesn't he say one point in Fiddler on the Roof, Lord, can't you choose somebody else for a while? We're your chosen people, all this bad stuff's happening. You get what I'm saying? Because we belong to you, we end up being the the enemy of this place. (laughs) But then he says in verse 23, his prayer for deliverance. Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Is anything that we go through here permanent? Nope. Maybe hard for a long time, but it's not permanent. There are brighter days coming. We're going to see as we go on. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? So it's it's okay. It's okay to look up to God and say, Why am I going through this? And why is this so hard? But we also have to recognize our strength comes from Him. Our focus needs to be on Him. He says, For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our body clings to the ground. He's saying we're just about dead. I'm just about dead. I'm bent over. My body's clinging to the dirt. I'm going to join it any minute. Uh, I, it's almost past time. In verse twenty-six, he says, "So arise for our help, and redeem us for your mercy's sake." In the end, remember what he said in verse four: "You're my king forever, and I'm I'm a servant in your army." And and things are really hard right now, and we're about to die. So. By your mercy, arise and save us. But no matter what, you're my king forever. I remember when I first went into boot camp. It was kind of a scary experience. People screaming and yelling at you. And and I was older than a lot of the other guys who went in at the time because it took me a while to decide what I was going to do with my life. And so, <clears throat> since I still didn't know, I thought Marine Corps seemed like a good plan. So, yeah. But... I learned a lot of stuff. I don't know how much of it was good, but I learned a lot of stuff. So, <clears throat> actually, I'm uh, I'm really thankful for that time. But I remember guys screaming and yelling. They don't let you sleep for three days. Now, th- nowadays, it's much simpler. They don't do nothing mean to you. They're very nice. and It's a whole new Marine Corps now. It didn't used to be that way. You know, now, apparently, you know, if, if one yells at you too much, you can call your mom. So... <laughs> So I I find that to be humorous. But anyways, I remember all the chaos. Three days, no sleep, and and you're amazed. After you haven't slept for three days, how stupid you are. You get so dumb. I remember sitting in, standing in a line, standing in a line, and all they want me to do is step with my left foot first. So they'd make us say it every time. 30-inch step with your left foot. Take a 30-inch step with your left foot. Aye, aye, sir, 30-inch step with our left foot. And you'd step with your right foot. And you'd go, you got to be kidding me. I just said, I'm, how can I be this dumb? That's all part of the deal. And then, then after three days, you sleep. And you actually start to be able to function. But I remember my drill instructor saying, when, when we're done boot camp, and boot camp's a long time, you feel like you're there forever. When we're done boot camp, if I tell you guys Go over there and get a plane and bring it over here. You'll go do it. And I said, there's no way I'm ever going to do nothing for you. If you're on fire, I'm not putting you out. I'm just going to sit back and watch you burn. But by the time it was over, if he'd have told me, go get the plane, I'd have done it. Because by the time the training was over, I, I understand the phrase, you're my king. I'm here at your disposal. If I'm supposed to go over there and die over there to try to take that hill, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'll go do it. And so Psalm 44 is the voice of a soldier saying, Hey, if, if I'm supposed to die out here, if I'm going down into the dust, I'm going down into the dust asking for your deliverance. I'm just, you're my king. I'm here at your disposal. And all of a sudden the psalm becomes... A great anthem of worship. For me, anyway, to say, wow, it's hard. Life's hard. It's difficult. I don't understand what's going on. That's just real life, isn't it? It's It's hard. It's difficult. But you're my king. And I'm here at your disposal. For your sake, we die all day long. The good news is Psalm 45 is a little happier. Let's take a look. Psalm 45 says, To the chief musician set to the lilies a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. It's a wedding song. I I was going to make a smart Alec comment, but I'm not going to. But the other thing that I want you to recognize about Psalm 45 is that it is messianic. means... Yes, it's a wedding song, and it was really delivered. Some people think it was, it was the song for Solomon when he married the Egyptian uh, princess, his first wife, um, that it's a song. And it, and it may have continued to be a song that was sung for royal uh, weddings um, when kings got married. Uh, and if it was for Solomon, they may have sang this song multiple times because he kept making the same mistakes over and over again. But when we look at it what I also want you to see and what I think you'll recognize when we work our way through is the the real the real one who's pictured is Christ in the church. The bride is the church and the Messiah is is the 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 bridegroom. Let's take a look. So it begins by the writer saying my heart is overflowing with a good theme. So I'm stoked. I'm really happy. I can't wait to, to, to put together this, this poetry. As I recite my composition concerning the king, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Uh, this guy's gifted. He's, he's gifted with words. He's ready to go. He's ready to write. And I believe, uh, obviously, that, that God is speaking through him uh, to us, both prophetically and uh, through the word. He says, You are fairer than the sons of men. That first phrase you are fairer than the sons of men <clears throat> in the Targum which is a translation the Aramaic from the Hebrew the Targum when it's translated this is what they write they write thy beauty o king messiah is fairer than the sons of men so when the when the Jews are, are were 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 translating very early, Targumum's very early as they're they're translating that translation, they recognize this psalm to be speaking of the Messiah. That's kind of an important thing to, to get, that, that, you know, after the time that it's written, that was the view. It's not just something we're saying now, it's something that they saw. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Grace poured on It's just it's such a great description of, of Jesus Christ. Such a great description of the bridegroom. He says, Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. So he talks about the this king, this bridegroom as being a, a mighty man of valor, military valor, strength and vitality, and that strength and vitality Uh, leads him to prosperity because he is in truth and humility and righteousness. Pretty good description of Messiah, isn't it? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God? Is he not the humble king? What, What could be more humbling than leaving the glories of heaven to be born as an infant child cared for by a human mother. Truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Awesome things. Your right hand was the, the, the place of strength. And the beauty when we look at Christ, when we, when, to me it just comes alive when, when we place Christ in the scriptures often, we place Christ here. the beauty is that the Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 tell us that there is a great kenosis. And a great kenosis or an emptying of himself, Jesus laid aside not his divinity, but he laid aside his rights and his power. And he came to say what the Father gave him to say, and to do what the Father asked him to do. And he did it and said it through the power of the Holy Spirit so that when he looked at his disciples, he could say to them, you can do what I'm doing, because I'm not doing this because I'm God, I laid aside, my power, I'm functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism, this is my beloved son, the son whom I love, and whom I am well pleased, he was empowered for ministry, God worked through him in the exact same way that God can work through you and I. If we're submitted, if we're, surrendered in the same way we follow in those footsteps so we see your right hand will teach you awesome things the core of his strength the power of the Holy Spirit what's the core of the strength of the believer today power of the Holy Spirit does the Holy Spirit not teach you awesome things does the Holy Spirit not give you the ability to do things you didn't think you would be able to do give you answers you didn't think you would be able to have and here we see the psalmist describing that same thing your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, and the people will fall under you. And then verse 6 ought to sound familiar. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now some people want to, to make the excuse, that the word Elohim, which is the word here for God, that the word Elohim is used sometimes of rulers. So, so it's just a title for the king. Just one small problem. If I want to surrender that for you, and I don't want to, but if I did, no king is forever. Only one person is eternal. Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. Is the only that he's talking to God. It's the only thing that makes sense. I'm not talking to a king. Did David reign forever and ever? No, he died. I can even show you his grave. What about Solomon? Did he reigned forever and ever? Nope. What about the line of David? Did it reign forever and ever? No. Unless you're looking at the reign, the current reign of the Messiah. The only way this makes sense is if he's talking about God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your throne, O God, is eternal. And we see this quoted for us in Hebrews chapter 1, don't we? And who is Hebrews chapter 1 referring this Psalm 2, Jesus. So I'm not making a stretch here. He's saying to the Son, to which of the angels did he ever say, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever? Who did he say it to? The Son, Messiah, the Christ, the Bridegroom. All of those things fit as we look at the psalm of the wedding. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, founded and established in righteousness, in purity, in justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Now, that phrase may not make a lot of sense to us, but that phrasing, has anointed you, is the word Messiah. Messiah. Christ. He has made you Messiah. Therefore, God, your God, has made you the Messiah. You have been anointed. You are the anointed one, the Holy One who is to come. Therefore, God, your God. We've got an issue, right? Therefore, God, your God. The Bible teaches us, so we work our way through the scripture. That God is unified. He is one God, eternally existent in three persons. People trip on it all the time. It's okay. You can trip on it. But the reality is that's what the Bible teaches. That's the definition of the Trinity. Not three gods. One God, eternally existent in three persons. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. The word used for one is the word echad, not yahid. Yachid means one and only one. That's not the word he used. He used echad. Why did he use echad? The first time echad is used, according to the principle of first mention in hermeneutics, is in Genesis chapter 2. That's pretty early in the Bible, right? When Adam is going to meet Eve... And the scripture says, so a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one, echad. The two shall be unified, united in a relationship of love and, and uh, comfort and strength and respect. All of those relationships that are apart Of the eternal relationship. That God has with himself. Father. Son. Spirit. All three there in Genesis 1. When Jesus is baptized. What does it say? The spirit descended how? Like a dove. Genesis chapter 1. It says that the Holy Spirit. Hovered over the waters. You know what it says in Hebrew? Fluttered. Like a dove. Fluttered. Like a dove, Genesis 1, Colossians 1, all throughout scriptures we see God eternally existent in three parts. So the concept that God would have a, a discussion with himself is not all that far-fetched. He did. In fact, he had everything he ever needed within himself. He never needed to make us for anything. We don't complete God or make God whole or make God more complete because we love him. God only made us for one reason. So he could love us. So he could teach us about it. Show us. It was his joy that brings us about. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. It was his joy to die for us. And on that day when the Father told the Son, Today I have anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your brothers. You are going to be the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Holy One, who will take away the sin of the people and once and for all claim this land all for you. All for the glory of God. Of the Father all for the glory of God. So it's not far-fetched at all when we see the discussion. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The oil of gladness was always the anointing oil used at a wedding. The oil of joy, celebration. It's a party. And this is a party that he's talking about. This wedding that he's writing about here in Psalm 45 is when the Messiah takes his bride... The bride that's filthy and dirty and, and unclean that has been made clean. And that's the, that's the emphasis as we go on in the psalm. He says, all your garments are scented with myrrh. What would they use that for? That interesting thing to be wearing at a wedding? A spice for burial? You've been anointed with myrrh. And Aloes and Cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. Your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir, the queen in perfect pure gold. Anytime they wanted to talk about the purest gold, they call it gold of Ophir. And so saying, your, your queen, your bride, has made herself ready, pure gold pure gold look listen oh daughter consider and incline your ear now he's talking to the bride Uh, picture of the church forget your own people and also your father's house when we follow Jesus what happens we renounce everything right except that you forsake all you cannot call yourself my disciple you don't get to carry all the world in your pockets while you're following Jesus you leave it behind what did disciples do they walked away from being a fisherman. It doesn't mean they never fished again. It just means that's not how they were going to be defined anymore, was it? They were going to be followers of Jesus Christ. They renounced all to follow him. Forsake your own people and your father's house, so the king will greatly desire your beauty. The king will greatly desire your beauty. What made her beautiful? You forsook at all for me he laid it all down for me because he is your lord worship him interesting because he is your lord worship him and the daughter of tyre will come with a gift and the rich among the people will seek your favor revelation chapter 21 i want to say 24 to 26 26 Talk about the time when Jesus rules and reigns as king. That his bride is there with him. And he's gathered together and it says that the nations will come bearing gifts. For his glory. Same thing that's being described here in Psalm 45. That the daughters of Tyre, the rich, the wealthy, the, the other nations will come bearing gifts. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Now they're together. The wedding ceremony is over. They're together in the palace. Her clothing is woven from gold. And she shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins her companions who follow her shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. It's like he's describing the, the wedding Of the the marriage supper of the Lamb. The wedding supper. They're coming. They're singing. They're dancing. They're gathering together. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons. Whom you shall make princes in all the earth. Now speaking to the king. He's saying look. uh, There's going to be a promise of remembrance. Of perpetuity. And of honor. Your your Kingdom is going to go on and on and on. It won't be a looking back; there will be a looking forward. Whom you shall make princes in all the earth, and I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. To me, the Psalm forty-five is a wedding song. The Psalm, whether or not it was sung for Solomon and Pharaoh, it pictures the day when that psalm will be sung for jesus and his bride for the messiah at the great wedding supper the beginning of eternity us and him what a glorious day good way to stop a psalm of the labor of life and the struggle and the constant battle right after, not on accident, the psalm of the wedding. Why, why do we do this? Why the struggle? Why put ourselves in the fight? I, there's a, a section in, I want to say, Revelation chapter 19, where John writes that the bride is making herself ready. I think that's how the bride makes herself ready. She does what her bridegroom told her to do go to all the world, to every nation, baptizing them and teaching them, and knowing no matter how bad it gets, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And what happens at the end of the age? A wedding. A celebration. A party. When all the things that were ever wrong or hurtful in life are shed. And our great Redeemer redeems us by His mercy. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray.